Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. Let's join together in prayer. Father, we rejoice in the faith that you have granted to us by your Spirit through the Word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, the one in whom we express our ultimate faith for eternal life. Thank you that you have engendered faith in us toward you as we look at your good hand, your faithfulness, your long-suffering toward us. Thank you for all you've done. Help us this morning as we continue to worship you, as we worship you in your word, that you direct our steps, guide our thoughts, teach us by your spirit, humble us that we might yield to you in Jesus' name. Amen. What doubts do you have? What are the troubles that you're facing? What are the fears that are impacting your daily life? We all have doubts, struggles, and fears. Beyond that, what are your spiritual struggles? What is happening inside of your own soul and spirit? Does God care enough for you? Is he capable of dealing with your deepest struggles? Is he capable of that? As we take a step back and look, considering the message of Habakkuk, we want to consider the implications of one of the verses that is at the heart of Habakkuk's prophecy. And in meditating upon this one verse and some others that will come along in our consideration, what we want to notice is that our faith is for all of life. Our faith is for all of life. At the very heart of Habakkuk's message is this challenge that he was going through in observing the scene around him. He observed the the sinfulness of the people of Israel and what he felt was God's seeming inaction toward that sinfulness. God, why aren't you dealing with the sinfulness of your people? They're just continuing on in sin and there's no checking uh, what's happening. And God tells him, well, don't don't worry, I have a plan, Habakkuk. I will use the Chaldeans to, to judge my people. Habakkuk thought, well, that wasn't what I was expecting. I have other thoughts than that. I think there's a better way. God, certainly you would not judge us with people that are more wicked than we are. And God had an answer for him yet again. And that is, don't worry. When I reveal what I'm going to do, it will come to pass. Don't worry. Write it down so people can go and tell others about it. Write it down. And recognize this. The one who is just shall live according to faithfulness. Now, his own faithfulness, the faithfulness of God, or his faith in God is a a subject for debate about how that is interpreted 
or translated in the book of Habakkuk. After that statement, God says, I have some problems with the Chal uh, Chaldeans or the Babylonians as well, and they will, be, they will be judged. Don't worry. Having heard that message, Habakkuk, by the word of God, through the spirit of God, we don't know what the duration of time between his first complaint, his second complaint, God's answer to that second complaint, and the prayer of chapter 3, but we can see in the prayer of chapter 3 that Habakkuk got the message. And the message is this. God, you're great. You're capable. Your way is right. And you know what? No matter what happens in life, no matter what I face, even if everything is stripped away and there's nothing left, there's no food, there's no source for food, it's all gone, I will still trust you because you're God and I'm not. That's the gist of the book of Habakkuk. But right at the heart of it is this statement that is repeated three times in the New Testament. There are not many Old Testament passages that are quoted multiple times. But Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 is one of those that is multiply, in multiplication, quoted in the New Testament numerous times, three times. With that being said, it must be important. And so we did not want to leave our study of Habakkuk without addressing the importance of that statement. Take a look at chapter 2 and verse 4. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by his faith. Here's a general principle or a general statement regarding faith that I think is worthy of our consideration. Faith means not allowing our senses, sight, hearing, taste, smelling, touch, not allowing our senses to control our perspective, but rather having confidence in our almighty loving God. Let me repeat that. Faith means not allowing our senses to control our perspective, but rather having confidence in our almighty, loving Father. He says, behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but, but the just shall live by his faith. Who is the author of verse 4? Now we know the author of every statement in Scripture is God. We understand that. But who is speaking? Directly speaking, in verse 4. Who's speaking? Is this Habakkuk? No, this is God speaking. So the Lord, in verse 1, the Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain on tables, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end, it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it shall surely, or it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So God is answering Habakkuk about his questions, and God says, listen, there are two ways. There's this way, the proud way that results in a lack of, of uprightness or there's this other way the just one the way of the just and what is the way of the just living by faith 
faith means not allowing our senses to control our perspective, but rather having confidence in our almighty, loving God. So this morning, as we consider this briefly, and it will be brief because we are celebrating the Lord's Supper together, we want to notice four truths, four truths about true faith. First of all, from Habakkuk 2.4, true faith impacts all of life. True faith impacts all of life. When we see corruption spreading abroad, seemingly just everywhere, and there just doesn't seem to be consequences to that corruption that is spreading, do you trust God? When things don't make sense to you, do you still trust God? Notice that God contrasts living by faith with two character traits. First of all, in verse 4, the proud, the proud. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in just a minute, but I want you to also see the second characteristic, and that is this. His soul is not upright in him. Two characteristics, the proud, this proud one, his soul is not upright in him. So he uses two characteristics about this person. And it's contrasting the one who walks by faith, that just lives by faith. That, that's the way it is. But the, the other side of the coin is the proud one, and his soul is not upright. Now, those two concepts, though there are two, are interconnected. And we'll talk about that in just a couple of moments. So, first of all, this concept of the proud one. Take a look at Numbers 14 for a moment. Numbers 14. This is one of those important passages of Scripture, not that any of them are not, but in Numbers chapter 14 you have the record of the people of Israel deciding that God's plan wasn't good. Do you hear that? The people in Numbers 14, the people of Israel decided God's plan isn't good. How'd they figure this out? Well, they sent 12 spies out into the land. The, the spies looked at the land. They came back and the report was this. It's an exceedingly great land, just like God told us. It's amazing. You should see the, the, it's a land that truly is flowing with milk and honey. You should see the size of the grapes. It's amazing. The problem is, the size of the grapes is commensurately measured by the size of the people. The reason the grapes are so big is the people in the land are giants. We can't possibly face giants. We shall not enter this land. We will certainly be decimated. And so the big grapes go uneaten. God had told them to enter the land. God had promised them that land. God had delivered them from the land of Egypt. Let me ask this question. Who's bigger, the people of Egypt or the people in Canaan? The Egyptians were a mighty nation at that time that God delivered them from. And here they come to Canaan. Oh, we certainly can't, we can't see ourselves going into battle against them. This is the context of Numbers 14. And the people said, we will not go in even though God told us to. And God says, oh, well, I have some news for you. The news is not good news. Since you did not obey my voice, Joshua and Caleb, the other two spies who came back with a good report and said, God will give us the land, Joshua and Caleb, they're going to make it into the land. But you guys are not. Anyone 20 years old and older, you're going to die in the wilderness. So you're right, you're not going to make it into the land. You're going to wander about for another 38 years. 
And in those 38 years, I'll preserve your children, and they'll make it in, but you will not, because you did not obey my voice. You can imagine the consternation in the soul of the people, and so they had a change of heart. Listen to how the Bible records their change of heart, beginning in verse 39 of Numbers 14. Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And they rose up early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you, not in this, not in this endeavor. He didn't say he was not among them at all, not among you in this endeavor. Verse 43, For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. Listen carefully to verse 44. This is the only other use of the word proud, in Habakkuk 2.4, remember? Habakkuk 2.4, behold the proud. This word proud is the only other time in all of Scripture that that same Hebrew word is used this way. Verse 44, but they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord, nor Moses, departed from the camp. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. What is happening here? Why is the word presumed the same word as proud, and why are they related, and what's going on? Here God told them, go take this land, I've given it to you. It's an exceedingly good land, it's the land of promise. I promised Abraham and Abraham and his children, his seed, that it would be theirs. They said, no, thank you. We don't want to go in. We don't trust you. They heard the consequence for their lack of trust. They said, oh, I guess we ought to go in. And so when God told them not to go in, they presumed, they proudly made a decision. Oh, we will go in now. Moses said, don't do it. God's not with you in this. We will go up. They presumed. What is this word proud or presumed giving us the impression of I will do it my way I know better let me give you two other biblical illustrations of a similar sort remember Cain it doesn't use the word proud there but can you see it I will bring an offering of the fruit of the ground even though God gave me an example of how I should bring an offering even though uh, when, when he brought it God said this is not what I asked for I am not pleased with you. You know, sometimes we, we bring the wrong offering, we do the wrong thing, and when we find out there's, it's the wrong thing, there are two ways to respond, right? Puff out our chest and say, it's the right thing. Or the second alternative and the far better one is to say, I was wrong, and bring the right one. I wonder what would have happened. I wonder what would have happened if Cain, instead of puffing out his chest, furrowing his brow, clenching his fists, gritting his teeth, said, no, this is what I'm bringing. This is the right offering. Now, you know that's how it went, right? You can see the rest of the story in Cain and Abel. What's the problem? Proud. 
presumptuous. How about, remember Achan? God said, listen, as you're coming in, you're taking the land, as you leave Jericho, don't take any of the booty for yourself. Don't take any of the loot for yourself. It's not for you. If anything comes, it's for the treasury of the Lord, not for yourself. Achan saw something that would take care of he and his family for the rest of their days. He coveted it, he took it, he hid it. What was the problem? God, your plan's not good enough. Folks, don't sit there and lie to yourself. The Israelites aren't alone. Cain is not alone. Achan is not alone. We do this. Behold the proud. They're presumptuous. Well, because of that presumptuousness, because of the, I, I think I know better, it leads right into that second character trait, which is he's not upright. His ways are not upright. Uh, there are two character traits, and they're related this way. If we don't agree with God, we're going to walk in contrast to his revealed will. If we think, God, it's, you know, really, you, didn't, you couldn't really have meant that. I'm sure you didn't really mean that. It's got to be okay for me to do this, whatever this is. If I start using illustration, it'll cut you off. You know whatever this is. What decision are you struggling with? What, what activity is going on in your own life that, you're, that you really have to weigh out? Are you going to be taking heed to a passage like 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5 that says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take into captivity every thought to obey Christ. Will you weigh your will, your decisiveness, your thoughtfulness, your passion, will you weigh it against what God reveals? If you won't, you are the presumptuous one. You're the proud one. And you know what the result will be? Your way will not be upright. Well, so how are these related specifically? In, in the Bible, this is a very familiar passage. The Bible says in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight, that's the same word, upright, he will make straight your paths. What is he asking you to do? Trust him. Trust him. What does it mean to trust him? God, you're right. God, your ways are right. Your word is right. Your will is right. Trust him. And you know what he will do? He will make straight your paths. He will make your ways upright. Because rather than thinking your way is best, you realize that his way is best. This is how faith impacts all of life. Knowing his way is best and that there are no other alternatives. Do you believe that, friend? That an alternative to God's way is no way at all? Well, you know that it's a way, but it's not a way for you. This is how God contrasts living by faith. Proud, which results in, in not upright living. So the contrast that we're looking for is not the, the proud and the, the not upright way, but is the living by faith way. True faith impacts all of life. Secondly, and importantly, head to Romans chapter 1. True faith results in justification. Now, as we go, 
transition into this next portion of our meditation and study, we're, we're now seeing how God uses this passage of Scripture, Hebrew, uh, Habakkuk 2.4, in the New Testament. Three places. The first is found in Romans chapter 1. And what we're going to notice about these three usages is it emphasizes a little different aspect of that phrase, the just shall live by faith. In some ways, you could say it shows a past, present, future perspective. Now, I wouldn't hold strong to that. That's it's more of a, just kind of a way to categorize it. As you look at this first passage, Romans chapter 1, what we want to notice is this. True faith results in justification. And the emphasis here is upon the first portion of the phrase, the just. The just. Look at Romans 116, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, the gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What Paul is introducing them to is the power of the gospel. He's reminding them of the power of the gospel and how it cannot be thwarted, that he's not ashamed of it, they shouldn't be ashamed of it. He wanted to come and impart the gospel to them. Why? Because the gospel brings forth results. And what he says is, the just, the just one, the one who is the just, shall live by his faith. But the emphasis is upon this righteousness that results. The essence of the gospel is that we believe that God saves sinners like us by grace, through faith, in Christ. Or to say it even more appropriately, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When a person believes the gospel, which is grace, faith, Christ, God imparting a gift gets grace Faith, it's not about me, it's about him. Christ, that is the basis, the object of my faith. He lived perfectly in obedience to the Father's plan, fulfilling the law of the Old Testament. He lived a righteous life. He was sacrificed on the cross, bearing my sin. He defeated that sin because he paid for that sin. He was buried, and the third day he rose according to the scriptures. When a person embraces Christ as their savior, God grants to them something that they did not deserve, righteousness. That's called justification. God removes our sin. That's the, the mercy portion of salvation. God removes our sin, and he adds to our account righteousness. That's justification. It's two things. The removal of sin and its guilt and its consequences and the addition of righteousness with its attendant blessings which is eternal life, a relationship with God, the spirit of God indwelling us, etc, etc, etc. We've got this. So true faith results in justification. As we look at this use of Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans 1.16, it emphasizes what has already taken place in many of our lives. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you've been granted the righteousness of Christ, never to be removed. That's justification. Thirdly, as you head over to Galatians chapter 3, a third truth about true faith is this. 
True faith is the path of a realized sanctification. True faith is the path of a realized sanctification. Now, don't, don't get overwhelmed by the word sanctification. Sanctification is the process whereby God makes us holy. It's just simply talking about holiness. This would refer more to the present of what faith is doing. Faith in the past, we, we embrace Christ as our Savior. He justifies us. That is a permanent situation. Now as we look to from the just shall live is the concept that we want to emphasize in Galatians. Shall live by his faith. In the process of our day-to-day life, God is doing something. And that's the, what we see here in Galatians chapter 3. Now the, the quote is in verse 11, but I want to get a little bit of the context so we make sure that we understand the usage. So Galatians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Listen carefully. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect, being made perfect, by the flesh. So the context of Galatians chapter 3 is this. If God saved you by faith, doesn't he also sanctify you by faith? Isn't that, is that clear from those three verses? I think it is. Since God saved you by faith, it only makes sense that he will sanctify you, make you holy by faith. So we don't change our operation. We come to saving faith in Christ and then we work like, the, like a, a dog to try to gain God's approval in salvation. Our approval is based upon a finished work. It's in Christ. And so just like saving faith is not meritorious because it's all based upon Christ, so is sanctifying faith is not meritorious because it's all based on Christ. Now look a little further now, beginning in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live, continually, shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, I I want to talk to you about something that's very important. Because the Bible talks in two different ways about this concept of sanctification. And and if we don't see both sides and understand it, we're going to be very confused. And there are many that are very confused. And there are many that mislead people concerning this subject of sanctification. The Bible describes believers as already sanctified. I want to point out two passages that say the believer, if you've trusted Christ, you're already sanctified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. Now, what do you know about the Corinthians? Anything? Model church? You want to model everything after that, that church? What do you know about the Corinthians? There's some struggles there, right? There are. These first two passages I want to, I want to discuss briefly relate to our position in Christ. Because we've come to faith in Christ, we have this position that is true of us, regardless regardless of our condition. So we're talking about positional truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 2, 
to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He just told you in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that every believer everywhere is sanctified. Every believer everywhere is sanctified. That's what he just told you. Because he said, here, I'm writing to you. This is to the church of Corinth, to those sanctified, already done, in Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he doesn't just talk about the Corinthians. He's saying, you and everyone also who knows Christ, all of these people are all sanctified. It's a done deal. Additionally, in the book of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, the Bible says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So he's, he's addressing them. He's telling them, do this, put, put on then, now he's addressing them as God's chosen ones who are known as, who are in fact holy and beloved, put on what? Well, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. If we skip over that address, we miss the, one of the main points. God's people are already declared holy. Sanctified. It's true. If you've trusted Christ, you are holy. God is pleased with you. God has accepted you. Because it's not based upon your actions. Your salvation is based upon Christ's actions. Well, so also is your sanctification. So also is your sanctification. So, now that's positional truth. If we just leave it there, we don't have the full picture. Many leave it there. Many don't even talk about this. Okay, so many people don't even talk about the fact that God has already declared us holy. That's one problem. Some just leave it there and move on as if, well, that's it. Well, the Bible also speaks of sanctification as a process. So the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, a very familiar passage, at least I hope it is, says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you how completely and may your what whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our lord jesus christ he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it now i want to show you first of all who's doing this work god is okay so we're not saying hey listen god declared you sanctified now go and actually do it we're saying god has declared you sanctified and there's a process whereby he is accomplishing this in your life. He will do this. There's no doubt. He will make you holy. He will do the, the whole deal, body, soul, and spirit. But you can see there's progress going on here. It's not just one, one and done. So what do we do to, with this? Well, that's what Galatians chapter 3 is emphasizing. The just shall live. The just shall live by his faith. Romans emphasized the just, faith results in justice. God is making us just or righteous. That's great. It's justification. It's beautiful. Galatians then emphasizes that middle section, shall live. The just one shall live. Don't just say you have faith. It just say you have faith doesn't save anyone. Ask James. James, uh, you know, yeah. show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. He's not saying my works made me saved. He's saying let me demonstrate that God has saved me. Look at what God is doing. 
Now, I don't recommend you go around saying, hey, look at my life, look at how great I am, so you can know that I'm saved. I don't think that's a great idea, but it's there. So we, we look at it and say, there's something to be said. The result that we see here, or the, the concept we see here is, true faith is the path of a realized sanctification. Realized meaning, okay, condition, positionally I'm sanctified, but I want that sanctification to be seen now. For my glory, no. Absolutely not. I don't want any bit of glory. I don't deserve any bit of glory, which is why it's a work of faith. God is the one who sanctifies. So that leads us to one last passage on this matter. Hebrews chapter 10. True faith impacts all of our lives, every portion of our lives. True faith results in justification. True faith is the path of a realized sanctification. Finally, true faith does not dissipate under pressure. You know what that means? True faith doesn't crumble. These colors don't run. Listen, someone who has true faith, you put a gun to their head. There's no way. There's no way you're going to make me denounce Christ. There's no way. Put a knife to my throat. Put a razor to my vein. Go ahead. I don't want you to do that. But true faith doesn't dissipate under pressure. Real faith. You know who your Redeemer is? You know what he's done for you? You know what he's accomplished? True faith doesn't say, no, no, too much pressure. I'm going in another direction. Look at what he says here. Now he's warning them because they're struggling. This just group of believers says in verse 32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he... He changes the Old Testament text because it said it. He who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live, now the emphasis is on, by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If it ended right there, we would be a little bit perplexed. But it doesn't end right there. In verse 39. But we are not of those who, what? Draw back to perdition. But instead, we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, Romans 1 is about justification. You can kind of think about that as past. Galatians 3 is about sanctification. You can kind of look about that as present. And you'll notice that the emphasis in this passage is about this reward that's coming. It's the reward that's coming. It's really about future. And so God wants us to trust him about our future. Instead of worrying about now and the things we're facing and the difficulties and the pressures that come and the, the immensity of those pressures, God says, do you, know who, do you know who called you? Do you know that there's a great reward awaiting you? He says, the just shall live by faith. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at things which are unseen. Why? Because the things that are seen, they're what? Temporal. Okay, someday the pulpit here is going to be gone. Someday my car, gone. House, gone. Clothes, gone. All the stuff that we, we cling to, we love, we try to save and preserve, it's all going to be gone. It's temporal. 
we look to the things that are eternal. Eternal. We look to our future, the future that God has for us. Great reward awaits those who trust God. I want you to turn to one last passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 8, please. As we consider this kind of faith, remember he tells us that if someone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who draw back to perdition. We're of those who have faith, the kind that saves the soul. We have real faith. And they had evidenced that faith, which is why he reminded them of the beginning of their conversation, the beginning of their walk with God, which was this. When you first came to know Jesus as your Savior, there was immense pressure, just as much pressure as you're under now. And when you faced that pressure, you didn't cave in. You gave up everything. And you didn't just give up everything for yourself. You saw other people in their difficulties. You joyfully in, encountered the plundering of your goods and you helped those who were in chains. You evidenced the, the genuineness of your faith. We're not of those who draw back to perdition. We are of those who, who believe to the saving of the soul. Now listen, how do they have this genuine faith that lasts like this? Is it because they, they're just a special breed? They're just a special breed of people that can really hold on no matter what's going on. That's not the reason. It's not about your ability to, to hold. It's not about your strong grip, your strong will. It's not about your great faith that you possess in and of yourself. It's something far greater because your faith will fail. Your grip will loosen. Your, your will will break. It will the kind of confidence that we have, that we have the faith to the saving of the soul, is because our faith comes from him. It's real. He holds us. We don't hold him. The reason we can hold him is because he holds us up. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, this great, great passage. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? The one who condemns is Christ. But he died. And further also, furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God. And instead of condemning us, he is also making intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Who can do that? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, shall famine or nakedness, get no clothes left, get nothing left, peril, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. This, this is the God we worship. He is unshakable. He is unflinching. He is unchangeable in his love toward us who are his. Our future is settled. How could we not trust a God who laid down his own life to pay for our sin, 
Sin that was in direct rebellion against him. Doesn't that act remove any doubts about his ability and willingness to take care of you? Does his willingness to sacrifice his son, does Jesus Christ's willingness to sacrifice himself, does that act prove to you that God is able and willing to care for you? Real faith, true faith, impacts every area of our lives from justification to sanctification to this ability to endure under any pressure. God cares for you. His care is demonstrated very clearly in the death of his son.